Welcome to On Scripps Biblical World, a podcast exploring the history, archaeology, geography, and cultures of the Bible. Visit us at onscriptstudy biblicalworld. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Biblical World Podcast. This is Matt Lynch coming to you from Regent College in Vancouver. In this episode, we're continuing our special texts of the ancient Near East series, and we're going to be talking about the Lachish letters or Lakish letters. And we have uh, a, we've had a couple of episodes in the series so far. We talked about the Amarna letters uh, a while back and the Moabite stones. So have a listen back through our earlier episodes if you want to get caught up on this series. And otherwise, I hope you enjoyed this episode. Thanks so much to Ed Hackey for producing this episode and all of our episodes at OnScript and this Biblical World podcast. So thanks so much, Ed. Enjoy. Welcome back, OnScript Biblical World listeners. I am joined today, well, first of all, I should say I'm Chris McKinney, if you didn't remember. I'm joined today by uh, Mary Buck, my co-host and fellow conspirator on the Stain series. We're back with some stains today. Mary, what do you think? Sounds good. <laughs> Sounds good. We were just discussing what Stain stood for. We don't really remember. We think it's significant or special texts of the ancient Near East. So feel free to write in your preference. Special or significant text of the ancient Near East. And we've done a few of these before. We've done the the Mesha Stele. Uh, we've also done the Amarna Correspondence. And we have a list of other texts that we plan to get to. Um, and so as we get back into the swing of things here, Mary and I were discussing which one we should tackle next. And uh, we decided on the Lachish letters, the Lachish letters, which uh, probably for most listeners, um, that might ring a bell um, back in your mind, uh, maybe at least with the city of Lachish. Um, but perhaps you've heard of these. Uh, they were discovered, as we'll see in the in the 1930s, primarily. Um, they're very they're a very interesting set of texts because, they were found at a site that's well identified, and they actually have some historical details that are that are of, that are of interest to us. Um, as we're we're gonna we're gonna look at a couple of these texts today, including the famous one, Lachish Letter Four. That is the text that, if you do know anything about the Lachish letters, you know about Lachish Letter Four because it mentions the fire signals, uh, very similar to like you see in Lord of the Rings Two Towers. Uh, where the towers of Gondor alert the riders of Rohan that war is at the gates. Um, that's a nice tease for something that existed in ancient Judah. They had a fire signal uh, system that alerted them to uh, incoming war, incoming um, attack. Um, and But an unlike um, for, for Gondor, uh, it didn't really work because it seems the times that it was used was the times that kind of got wiped out. Uh, but we'll get into some of those specifics uh, here in a little bit. What I'd like to start us off with is is talk about the uh, the city of Lachish and talk about why it's such a significant site in um, in biblical archaeology, why it's such a significant site for understanding uh, the ancient kingdom of Judah. Uh, I won't go into all the specifics. I could say a lot about it uh, because it's essentially like in our backyard when we're talking about Tel Borna. And I've had the great privilege of visiting the site many, many times, including one time with uh, my former professor, 
Gabi Borkai for something like six or eight hours, uh, where he walked us through his 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 twenty some odd years of excavation there. So it's a it's a big site with a lot of um, a lot of connections. And so let's start with um, let's start with where it is. Uh, Lakish is identified with uh, a place called Tel Aduer, which is located in the western Shvela. That is to the west of the hill country, more or less in a straight line, uh, due west of of Hebron, something like thirty five miles uh, or so to the southwest of of Jerusalem. During the time of the um, y- 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 during the time of the United Monarchy, the site was apparently not occupied. During the time of the Divided Monarchy, the site was occupied and actually became most likely the second most important city in the kingdom. I say most likely because we don't really know what Hebron had. Could be that Hebron was the second most important, but it's certainly in the hierarchy of of sites um, just after Jerusalem, and would have been the uh, regional capital of the Judean Shvela. Much more important than other sites, including the sites that that I've excavated, uh, Tel Borna, uh, Maresha, Adullam, and some of these others that are kind of medium-sized sites. Lachish became uh, this really prominent site, and it was occupied from the late 10th century, according to the new excavations, all the way down into the destruction um, in 586 BC. Now, with can I stop you there really fast? Just because I studied the Bronze Age, not the Iron Age, I just feel like you jumped over like a thousand years of history of the Lachish site. I mean, it's I know you care about the Iron Age, but I feel like listen. You know, Lachish was there and the Bronze Age was a really important. And the reason for that, no, I I, I know you know that. I just, um, just kind of backing up the chronology, it was, Lachish was a very significant site from the Middle Bronze Age. We have good um, uh, fortification systems there with a the glass sea, which help us understand kind of what the fortifications were like in the Middle Bronze Age, of course. And then, um, so Middle Bronze, reminder, 1800 to 1500, roughly, right? And then Late Bronze Age, it continues to be um, an important site. So it doesn't have a period of, of lack of um, urbanization. And during that time, it comes under the guise of the, the New Kingdom in Egypt. And um, and we we know about it from the Amarna letters and stuff. So it's it, it already has a good thousand years years running when it comes under the the, the uh, control of the Judean monarchy. So just kind of adding that in there because I think it's an important, and the reason for it, if you haven't been there, you go to it, you can see just everything to the south. North is a little bit less, but everything to the south, you just have such a good view and would have really commanded the landscape. It's quite a high, I don't even know, I don't know the, I don't know the height, but it's, it just gives a com- pretty commanding view of the south. Yeah, no, it's, it's, a, it's a great point. When we, I mean, I've, I also like the Bronze Age. It's a it's a good friend of mine. Um, <laughs> no, you don't. No, you don't. Let's be real. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, and and that's actually really one of the interesting things about Lachish overall is it is probably in the late Bronze Age that one of the top three or four sites along the coastal plain and the Shvela, and then it's abandoned, um, so like something around 1150 BC, and it's not occupied again for another uh, until you know, t- until 200 years later. Um, and so that's just part of the the backstory and part of the mystique of this site that it can become such a, a a critical part of the Middle Bronze and Late Bronze Age landscape that would be the land of Canaan, and then for 200 years or so drop off, uh, and other sites would uh, be around it. Right when the Philistines and the and the Judahites are settling in the area, and it, as as Mary said, it only becomes part of the Kingdom of Judah 
probably at the tail end of Solomon's reign, maybe in the days of Rehoboam. It's mentioned in the Rehoboam list in uh, in Second Chronicles chapter eleven, um, which is a debated uh, a debated list. Uh, but we, that's you know a topic for another day. But in any case, because the site is mentioned so many times in um, the book of Joshua, Chronicles, in the prophets, it gets mentioned, for instance, in Michael 1, um, as a place where there are uh, horses and chariots. Um, and it gets mentioned other places in the prophets. The most famous one would be the reference to the site being taken by Sennacherib, uh, king of Assyria, during his campaign in 701. Because of all those things, it's, a, it's just an absolutely critical site for understanding history. And the fact that it's been um, explored intensively over the last century, um, it really is um, maybe not the most important site in the country in terms of history. Maybe Megiddo or Hatsor or Gezer or Jerusalem would have that pride of place. But if we're talking about it strictly from an archaeological perspective, it's maybe the most important site in all of Israel, um, I, I wouldn't quite go there, probably Hatsu or Megiddo are there, but for sure for the South. Now, why that's the case is because the, the, the pottery that was excavated there, the materials that were excavated there from the Middle Bronze down through the Persian period were excavated well, published well, and then were part of the backbone for the archaeological uh, table, for the pottery table. And so when we talk about 8th century pottery, which would be the Sennacherib uh, event, which destroyed much of the Shvela in 701 BC, it's to Lachish 3, Stratum 3 that we go to. When it's Nebuchadnezzar destroying Judah in 586 BC, it's Lachish 2. And so we have well-defined stratigraphic levels for especially those two very well-known centuries, very well-known periods. That would be the Iron 2B and Iron 2C, respectively. And we owe it to uh, especially the excavations led by James Leslie Starkey, may he rest in peace, um, that w- that took place at the site in the, with the so-called first expedition. Now, a couple things about that. Um, and I'm going to come back to James Leslie Starkey. The first expedition took place um, by the so-called Petri Pups. These were the uh, these were the students of uh, Sir William Matthew Flinders Petrie, um, whose body uh, is at Jerusalem University College in the Protestant Cemetery, and his head is uh, somewhere in in London. Uh, that's a story for another day. Uh, but his students um, took over uh, essentially his mantle, and they chose the site of uh, Lachish to, to excavate it in the 30s. But unfortunately for them, after uncovering lots and lots of material, including our Lachish letters, which we'll get into uh, at some point today, James Leslie Starkey got in a vehicle to go to Jerusalem. He left uh, Lachish, headed up towards Hebron, and he was actually going to the grand opening of uh, what we now know is the the Rockefeller Museum, which is to the northeast of Damascus Gate in Jerusalem, and he was murdered uh, in the vicinity of of Hebron. And what's so interesting about this story, which I can't believe Agatha Christie uh, didn't turn into death at Hebron or something, is that they're still trying to figure out what the motivations were. If you, in fact, if you go to JSTOR, Google Scholar, or something, and and put who killed James Leslie Starkey, you can find five or six different articles going back and forth on what the motivations were and as to why he was why he was killed. So he was cut down in the prime of his of his career. I think he was in his 
early 40s, if I remember, maybe even late 30s. And he was right in the moment whether they were going to continue the excavation. Uh, they had discovered the Lachish letters. Um, there's these nice pictures that show him kind of pointing out where it was found. And it was left to um, his staff to finish the publication. And, and thankfully, one of those staff members was Olga Tufnell, who spent uh, decades publishing these these volumes, which, even though they're uh, a fairly early part of archaeological history, still stand up as being the kind of the 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 cream of what was what was out there in terms of archaeological technique and archaeological methodology for the period. And so they're still relevant, still very important sources until today. And then after the uh, Starkey expedition, we had another expedition by Yohanan Aharoni. Uh, this is before he decides to go south to places like Arad and Beersheba. He excavated something called the Solar Shrine, and he also found a couple of letters um, or ostraca that relate to the so-called Lachish letters. He didn't stay around, but uncovered several things of importance. And then we have the main expedition, which took place in the 70s and 80s. This was led by David Yushishkin and, uh, for instance, Gabriel Barkai. Uh, was one of his main um, area supervisors uh, that took place. Now, they exposed vast areas of the tell and built upon the excavations of uh, Starkey's expedition, including in the area of the, uh, of the gatehouse, which is where the Lachish letters were found, in Lachish Stratum II gatehouse. That would be the early 6th century, late 7th century, early 6th century, gatehouse that was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. Now, their excavations also continued all throughout the tell, including um, an area called Area S, S for section, and where they were digging from the top all the way down to the bottom. And so they stopped right about the beginning of the Late Bronze Age and the end of the Middle Bronze Age. Now, I mention this because the current expedition, which I think is number six, I lose count, uh, led by um, uh, by an Austro, uh, uh, it's, it's Hebrew University and a, and a, a university out of out of Austria. Katharina Strait is one of the um, is one of the directors. They're seeking to understand what is going on at Lachish in the Middle Bronze Age, and if they get through the Middle Bronze Age, what's going on there in the Early Bronze Age? And so that's one expedition. It's obviously a little bit early for what we're going to be talking about, but the expedition that took place between Yushishkin. And the, the latest expedition is that of Yossi Garfinkel, Michael Hazel, and Gerald Klingbill. Their point in excavating was to expose more of what we call Lachish 5 and Lachish 4. That is the uh, presumably uh, 10th, 9th, and 8th century, early 8th centuries BC. Now, that in particular, the 10th century was the focus of their, of their excavations. And to really get, do it justice, we'd have to do an entire episode. Maybe we'll have one with Yossi Garfinkel at some point. Uh, but, but that kind of gives you the, the broad uh, uh, sweep of, of history when we talk about the history of research at Lachish. Now, if we go back to Starkey, back to their excavations, they spent a lot of times excavating the slopes. They were the ones to uncover the gatehouse, which is actually two gatehouses on top of one another, one uh, that relates to the 8th century. This is the famous one because it was destroyed by Sennacherib. It's so famous that we even have a picture of it. Uh, Sennacherib put it in his palace showing where he besieged the site and, and broke into it with a, with a siege ramp. And so we can actually visualize uh, how the Assyrians depicted it. And then after that was destroyed in 701 BC, 
we have a rebuild of that um, at the site of Lakish, almost on the exact same uh, plan, much smaller, though, than the previous 8th century site. And they had a double gate which led into this uh, which led into this kind of entrance area of the tell. And in one of the rooms that that they built there, again, related to the seventh century, that's the six hundreds BC, there was a room that had something like fifteen to twenty of these letters that were found there, some of which are are very interesting, some of which are not very interesting at all. They're just a list of names, but any writing is important. Uh, another important detail about it, some of these letters were all from the same jar. So it's like a jar broke and they just used they used the, these these uh, broken pieces of pottery to write on. And there's all kinds of debates about what the purpose of the Lakish letters were. Were these an actual document that were sent? Was this kind of like a rough draft? The characteristics of the Lakish letters are primarily from a administrative and military correspondence. I mean, you're not going to find the Epic of Gilgamesh or a uh, Song of Solomon or something like that in Lakish letters. These are, for better or worse, administrative documents and correspondence between commanders helping to um, uh, to assess troop movements in uh, in Judah, um, and particularly in the region of the Shvela. They specifically make reference to the Chaldeans which are, which is uh, even according to the Bible, if we think of a book like the book of Habakkuk, is a, a reference to the Neo-Babylonian army that was approaching Judah at various times in the late 7th century um, and early 6th century and ultimately conquered it in 586 BC. And so that's um, really one of the, the main takeaways is that most of these we think date to the late 7th and, and early 6th centuries, right before the kingdom of Judah is destroyed. And they provide many different glimpses into, into our understanding of, of even people's names, how they would, how they would um, you know, ha- have biblical names, similar to biblical names, how these names would be formed. For instance, one of the things that really jumps out is how many people have Yahwistic names with the, with the ending Yahoo, uh, which is something different. And we could talk about that in, an, in another episode about the Samaria Ostraca, where in Israel, in the north northern kingdom, they'll have the a, a person's name ending it with, with a Yahwistic component, but it won't be Yahu, it'll be Yao. And so this is one of the aspects that, that we can see. We can also, as I, as I indicated, point to some administrative aspects. Now, there's about 30 plus of these letters. We're not going to read through them all. And quite honestly, some of them are like, this letter ha- this letter has a single letter in it that we can that we can identify a single consonant. Um, but there's several that are that are quite long and, and very interesting. And Mary and I, particularly Mary, are going to uh, read through these. Mary's translated a number of these on her own, and we're going to comment about different aspects of those. And so, with that serving as an introduction to the Lachish letters found by James Leslie Starkey in a gate. In, in the 1930s. Mary, take it away. Great. <laughs> um, no, thanks for the introduction. I um, It's funny, I always zoom in just on the texts themselves, and so I always forget kind of the importance of the fine spot. Um, as Chris mentioned, um, the importance of the text can't be understated, mostly because we just don't get any texts in Judah. So, um, and wanted to back it up really quickly. So with the most recent excavations there, um, I, Felix Hoffelmeyer, he's the co-director. He, um, 
he was at UChicago when I was there and doing his postdoc. Um, but they recently, uh, a couple of years ago, 2018, they found um, sort of a new alphabetic text from the from the Bronze Age, which is pretty cool. Doesn't really tell us anything, but it does kind of indicate that writing existed and quite early. So it's actually a really interesting find, um, and maybe more there waiting which is kind of cool. So it's, it's just a bit, it doesn't give much. It's just, um, an alphabetic, uh, text, but uh, kind of indicating there might be more that they will find. So kind of a lot of people are waiting to find, find out if there's something else buried. So that's kind of the earliest text. And then jumping forward, right. The texts that Chris just talked about are found right before the, uh, Babylonian, uh, conquest of the site in 586. So probably from the 590s. Um, and again, they were found in the 1930s. So they've been known for quite a while. They were really exciting when they were first found because it, it, is probably the largest corpus of of uh, letters found in Judah, which is huge, right? But they're late. They're very, very late. Um, but the cool thing is just kind of how much we know about writing, right? You find a lot about, even though they're just administrative, right? They talk about other towns. They talk about kind of organization of the military. Obviously, we have names. We have grammar. We understand that kind of literacy more, right? Do they have scribes at these sites? Um, and uh, as Chris mentioned, right, are they just sort of writing rough drafts on these pots so that, and then they write the letters themselves, right? Um, and then we also know they're writing in Hebrew, which is a big deal. They're not writing in, um, a, you know, Akkadian, right? They're like Neo-Assyrian, they're not, or Neo-Babylonian, they're not writing in that, right? They're writing in Hebrew. Um, and so that's really exciting to kind of get a sense of the fact that this this is a national language and it's being used actively because um, we otherwise we wouldn't have a lot of uh, examples of that going on, right? Sort of the scribal culture. The other thing that's interesting about the text is they're pretty long, right? I mean, some of them are short, but a few of them are really, really quite long. And so we actually have quite a bit of material. So if you kind of take a look, there's a, there's a great book by Ahitu called Echoes of the Past, which lists all of the, all of the writing we have from Judah and Israel in the um, in the Iron Age. And it's a really short book. <laughs> we just don't have very much. And a huge portion of this is dedicated to Lakish because we actually have quite a bit from that. Just, just, for our, just for our listeners, if you just want to remember it very easily, there's three major groups. There's the Samaria Ostraca, there's the Lakish letters, and there's the Arad Ostraca. That's really it as far as major assemblages of, of texts. Uh, and so Arad and Lachish, they basically go together as 8th through 6th century, and the uh, Samaria Ostraca are early 8th century. So, But here and there we have stray ones. But if you just remember those three big kind of groups of Ostraca, and then everything else is kind of um, a much smaller corpus. Sorry, go ahead. No, no, no. It's helpful. I mean, I feel like at some point we should go through this. But the reason why I think Chris and I talked about what what should we do, Lakeisha is sort of in our wheelhouse for both of us. One, it's right by Telburna for Chris, right? And it's like right in the Shvela or the Shipila as Chris likes to call it. And um, and then for for me, right, it's right in the, the texts are written in classical Hebrew, which is pretty wild. And we don't see that again. I mean, you obviously see it in the Hebrew Bible, but you don't see it again until you get the Bar Kokhba evidence of that, right? Like there's just really not so it's kind of interesting from a letter, you know, a literary standpoint. So, um, okay, so we're going to read two together. We're going to start on Lakish letter three because it's pretty long. Um, and then we're going to jump over to Lakish letter four. So, um, so we'll start with, we'll start with Lakish letter three and then 
yeah, let's do that. So um, we talked about the, the fact that they're written on potsherds, right? And all of that. Yeah. Yes. Excellent. Okay. All right. Let's. So I'm going to read it. It's pretty long. So um, feel free to get your pillows out for a moment. All right. Here we go. Um, your servant, Hoshiyahu, has sent to declare to my Lord, Yahush, may Yahweh cause my Lord to hear tidings of well-being and good tidings. Now open the ear of your servant regarding the letter which you sent to your servant last night. For the heart of your servant has been sick since you sent to your servant. And for the fact that your Lord said, do you not know how to read a letter? By the life of Yahweh, no one has tried to read a letter to me forever. And also any letter which comes to me, surely I have read it and I can repeat it down to the smallest detail. Also to your servant, it was reported saying, the commander of the army has gone down, namely Konyau, son of Elnatan, to enter into Egypt and to Hodau, Hodayau, son of Ahiyahu, and his men, he sent to take them from here. Also regarding the letter of Tobiahu, the servant of the king, which came to Shalom, son of Yadah, from the prophet saying, Be on guard, your servant has sent it to my Lord. And that's the end. <laughs> Sorry, that was, that, was just, that was just the end right there. Yeah, that's where it ends. So it's what, 21 lines? Is that what? 21 lines. That's, that's what Lemaire, in the copy that I have, it says it's 21 lines. And so there's yep. a lot of interesting things here. I mean, unfortunately, with these letters, you only have one side of the conversation. Um, but still, one side of the conversation is better than no sides. No of the sides, which is what we usually have. We usually have pot shirts. We're like, okay, watch this one. No letters. But this one has a lot of details on it. So uh, what, what jumps out at you? I have some things to say, but I want to see what, what, what you think. Obviously, there's there's some big things here. So, um, the first is the the use of the tetragrammaton. So it is fully spelled out. The yod hey vav hey is spelled out. And the reason why I mention that is because we get a series of letters from Elephantine Island in Egypt from the Persian period, the 400s, um, and they do not use the full tetragrammaton yod hey vav hey. They they shorten it into yod hey vav. Um, Yahoo, sometimes just Yod Bav, sometimes just like so versions of that. And it's clearly that there's kind of this movement away from writing the full tetragrammaton to kind of a shortened form. And there's lots of reasons for that. Um, but in general, the fact that it's still used here indicates that it's not like they're thinking you can't use the name of God. And so obviously, fast forward all the way to kind of the modern times, if you're in Israel, you're not, you know, if you say, hey, how are you doing? Somebody says, Baruch Hashem, right? They don't say, anything related to the Tetragrammaton, right? They use the word Hashem. And I say that only to, only to point out they feel completely fine using the full Tetragrammaton on the letters in here. And by Tetragrammaton, just wanted to clarify, that's the name, the writing, the four-letter writing of the name Yahweh, yod Hey vav Hey in Hebrew. Yeah, and I think that that is a, a very important point. We talked about in the Meshastili episode how that's the first reference we have to Yahweh um, in an extra biblical source. And that's a really interesting one because it comes from uh, an outsider, that is from a Moabite saying, these Israelites, uh, they they belong to Yahweh. And here we're talking about Judahites of the kingdom of Judah. Israel's gone. I mean, it's been des destroyed and exiled for uh, over a hundred years by this point. And they're still using the name Yahweh. And I think what's what's kind of interesting about this corpus also is if we think about the uses of um, of what we call the theorophic element, that is deity names in either places or people names as patronyms or or toponyms. Um, 
there's not a whole lot of variation. It's mostly a bunch of yahoos. Uh, um, it's, it's just that that's that's the the name that we see most uh, most common here. There is one in one of the later's texts, um, and it's not clear if it's a reference to a place name. But we have the name Anat, um, but it doesn't seem to be you know tied directly into people's people's names. Whereas Yahweh is very much um, you know the for sure head and shoulders above the rest in terms of deity names in this corpus. And that's something to interesting that we could compare it against uh, the, the Samariastrica, uh, where you have Baal um, being almost uh, a one-to-one, I think it's slightly less than El and, and Yahwistic names. Uh, and of course, the question there is, uh, what do they mean by Baal? They might mean Hadad, the storm god, or they might actually mean Lord, as uh, a reference to to Yahweh, and they could mean the same thing with El. So we don't necessarily privy to those details. But what's interesting here is, by and large, Yahweh is the predominant one, and so it, it kind of shows a shift in and in a movement toward a re- not only recognition that Yahweh is our, our one true God, but uh, a kind of a decline of these other names that would have been used in the early Iron Age. And what's interesting to me also is you can kind of see that reflected in the biblical text as well. Um, there's a famous inscription, um, two famous in, in, in inscriptions actually, um, from the same area that relate to the 11th and the 10th century. Uh, one is at Kirit El Rai, or Rai, uh, Kyle Keimer, our co-host, uh, has talked about the site a number of times and it, it's Mary Baal, uh, which is the same name as, as Gideon. And at, uh, and at, um, Kirit Kiafa, there's two inscriptions that have the name Ishbaal. Uh, which is the name Ishbosheth, um, according to the to the biblical text, the son of Saul. Both of those refer to earlier periods, and they're in the same region. And so it's just interesting to see the corpus of names that we have across the early Iron Age down through the time period that we're talking about. And so um, not getting into, you know, what does this mean about Deuteronomistic history, centralization, and all of that, uh, in terms of the the dating of the text that scholars often want to want to point to, but here we can see from the archaeology a a, a very clear uh, shift in, in terms of the names uh, and the way that they're used. So I think not only is the the reference to Yahweh important, but so is the just the broad sweep that we see among the the roster of of people's names in the list in in the letters. Yeah, no, I think that's all um, a good good point. So, and we see, um, just as Chris mentioned, right, the yeah, the Yahwistic element at the end of names is fully spelled out here, right? So, unlike the Sumerian Ostraca, where we get it uh, collapsed, um, there, I mean, there's some other things that are kind of interesting for from a philological perspective um, because this is a late form, um, but still before the Persian period, where we're really concerned about okay, what's happening with the the vowel shifts and the consonants and how the language is developing, and so one thing that we see in this letter is there's a couple examples where triptongs, um, which I realize is on the top of everyone's list of things they're interested in, um, are reduced in this letter. And the reason that that's important, uh, even though most of you think it's not, is that the, the language is developing, which is really important. So you see it in modern Hebrew too, where you get the loss of the hay and things like that. But the point is that they're writing what they're saying, not what they should be saying, if that makes sense, right? So it's like a slang form. So it's not a formal form. And that's actually pretty important for us to understand what's actually happening. So we see that on um, 
basically the final forms and endings and things like this that are collapsing in on themselves. So it's kind of cool because it's actually representing how they're speaking. And that's a very cool thing. Because if you think about linguistics, linguistics is you're able to actually record someone speaking. Um, and so we can't do linguistics for the ancient world. We rely on what's written down. And so when we can see, hey, the way they're writing is actually reflecting what they're saying, that's really, really cool. So we're getting a sense of kind of the speech patterns of the ancient people, which is pretty sweet. 2,500 years ago, we know how they're sounding. And again, off of a broken piece of pottery that someone picked up and thankfully didn't wash. I mean, that's the, <laughs> that's the, the technology that's just, you know... In fact, I read I read the mayor's report. He's like, we couldn't read this one because somebody put it in water and started washing, and all we can read is one letter. I mean, it's just that's what we have to deal with in terms of finding these texts. And, and you're absolutely right. I did have one question though. Do you think there's a coincidence that these trip thongs were found? <laughs> this is a joke. Like, like <laughs> East level three. I mean. No, no. He's level I knew three. it was. I knew um, it was going to be a joke, and I just wanted to like cut it off before you even started. But you kept going down the joke route. I tried to stop you, Chris, but no, you kept going. I um, did have one question for you. Um, <laughs> is this also the, a joke? No, it's not a joke. Well, it might be. Um, you'll know when you know. Okay, so in this in this letter, in particular, um, I'm going frame this question. Um, Scholars are really interested in literacy in ancient Israel, like very interested, um, rightfully so. You know how how literate were ancient Israelites on the whole? How how did scribal culture develop? All of these are big questions that ultimately have um, a connection with the development of the Hebrew Bible as as we know it and ha- as we have it. Um, and so this is one of those texts that is important because of what is said here, and I'll just, um, this is from Lemaire, so I'm just going to reread this this line, and I think yours was pretty close to it. He says, my Lord said, you do not know how to read a letter. As Yahweh lives, no one has ever tried to read me a letter. Moreover, when any letter comes to me, if I read it, then I can repeat it to the smallest detail. Now, there's I, I, again, I, you, I don't, don't want to put you on the spot here. Um, maybe you do have thoughts, maybe you don't, because I know there's different views on this, whether this is like a sign that a number of people are literate or, or um, Hoshiyahu is saying, I can read so good that I can even just look at this text and I can remember every detail, like he has some kind of, um, you know, photographic memory. And so there's, I know there's a number of different, um, number of different options here, but it does seem like the kind of text that is important. And at the very least, I would, you know, just make the comment that, for sure, the elite class, the the military class, who would also likely be the the governors and mayors, whatever term you want to use, of places like Lakish, there would have been a requirement, uh, at least for them to have access to people who would know how to read and write. Because, uh, and, and I think that's clear. But do you have any comments uh, to add to this particular part of the letter? No. Just okay. kidding. Yes, I do. I have so many. No, I mean, obviously, this is a really important part of this. And it, and it's it's a number of lines of the text as this guy defending himself. Um, we have a we have a pretty good tradition in text sources of elite individuals uh, claiming literacy. Right. This is actually a marker of um, sort of an elite status back all the way in the third millennium. So you get Shulgi in the Aura three empire. Obviously, that's like several thousand years before that. But, he, you know, it's 20, 2100 BCE. He's saying, hey, look, I can read. And not only that, I know five languages. And so it, it is actually representative of um, 
kind of that elite status. Um, the very fact that he has to say, how could you, you know, how dare you say that to me indicates that like most people probably didn't read. Right. So he's actually setting himself out. Otherwise the original person wouldn't have assumed it and he wouldn't feel the need to defend himself. So that means kind of the vast majority of people, probably you could assume they couldn't. And he's going above and beyond to say, no, for sure, I know, right? And I know the details, not only like it's not somebody reading it to me, I know the details of the letter. So meaning he himself is probably reading this. So it's pretty important. And he obviously wants to show forth his sort of status um, through this section. So nothing more than I think is pretty evidence. I mean, it's pretty maybe obvious from the letter, but... But I think if if our if our listeners are thinking of like a go to text in the ancient in ancient Judah to talk about literacy, this is one of those go to texts. I mean, I know people would point to like what is it uh, Judges eight seven or eight where Gideon encounters someone and says, "Go write this down." He knows how to write, but uh, there's not a whole lot where this comes up um, where you have kind of this immediacy to it in the Bible. And so this is a good one. Another aspect of this text, there, there's two other aspects I want to really, really want to bring out. One is um, geopolitical and, and military, and that is the reference to Egypt. Um, we don't know what date exactly this dates to. Um, there'll be more evidence for Lachish 4, our next letter that we'll discuss, as dating right around 586, maybe just a couple years before because of references to um, the attack on Lachish and Azekah, which connects with other passages. Um, but Egypt is a big player in this at this moment. As the Assyrian Empire collapses, um, and its final collapse um, happens in the like around 609 BC, not around exactly, uh, 609 BC, uh, where Haran, the the you know the the kind of emergency capital of the of the Assyrians, Falls to um, falls to the Babylonian forces. Egypt essentially claims the area what we would call Judah today and Philistia, and so scholars have more and more pointed out that in in that ten year period, five seven you know seven year period or so, uh, until uh, Babylon is able to kind of mount an attack and an invasion of the south, and it will do so uh, in, in might uh, so much so that by six oh four. BC, Philistia is no longer Philistia. It's 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 conquered by the uh, Babylonian Empire. I mean, Ashkelon, Gaza, Ashdod, and Ekron. Gath had long been gone, but that it's an important detail that one of the players that Judah might have been able to rely on was Egypt. And there's all kinds of this that is reflected in in the prophets. And one of the best examples of this, and it's not necessarily help because they didn't help them not destroy the temple. But Jeremiah is going to go down to Egypt after the destruction of, of the temple with a host of, of, um, of other people left over of the aristocracy or of the hierarchy of, of Judah's uh, royal family and kind of the elite status that they're brought down to Egypt. And that is reflected in something Mary mentioned earlier at Elephantine. And uh, I think there's another a temple also in Egypt where we have sources for these for later, but perhaps... It was the destruction that caused it, or could it even been even an earlier migration of, of of Judahites coming to this area? And so that's an, just an important detail, and and something that we can kind of keep in the back of our mind. And I, I always like to think about this too, because when we think about how fast history changes, even in our own day, like we're writing this right now, and there's all kinds of 
mounting tension on the border of Ukraine and Russia. And it feels like, what, maybe five years ago, this was kind of the same thing happening. And if we go back uh, another 15 years before that, we can talk about the Soviet Union. That's all happening rapidly in terms of, in terms of modern history. And even though we, we tend to think about the story of the Bible being about you know, Israel's emergence and then the Assyrian domination and then the Babylonian domination and the Persian and so on. There's there's room, particularly within the seams of these empires taking over, where where things can really shift. And one of those things, one of those times is the time period of of the Egyptians. And uh, I'll just end this and we could talk much, much more about it, but I'll just end this by saying uh, it's very consequential. How consequential? Ask Josiah. I mean, he, he he tried to oppose Pharaoh and he lost his life. And that's pretty consequential. We're talking about King Josiah. And we had that reflected like in Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 12, as being this prophecy, you know, that they'll mourn for him whom they've pierced like an only son that was lost at Hadad Ramon, which is what John quotes in when Jesus dies on the cross. I mean, so it's it's all kind of connected to that. But you can see how these geopolitical changes and events are very consequential, even if they're even if they're short lived, which is the case here. So that was that was that was point whatever point two point three. <laughs> um, but I did have I one other. Go ahead. If you have any comments, go ahead. I was just going to add to that. So just so like in, uh, our readers know, it happens to be for or our listeners because this is not a book, but rather a podcast. You might be reading our um, lips. They might be reading our lips. That's oh, wait, so there's true. no video. That's, that's oh, crap. Yet. No. Okay. So no, no, no. But I, I wanted to specify. So this um, sort of 30-year time period between 605 into the 580s, um, we know a lot about because of a, of a text called the Babylonian Chronicle. And the Babylonians... That's our next one. No stain series. We should not do that next. (laughs) We could do. I mean, it's like a list of happenings. But um, so, so the Babylonian Chronicle, really important text because we don't normally know a lot about like the fall of you know like what's happening and date and whatever. And because of the Babylonian Chronicle, now written by the Babylonians, right? Um, It does list out from about 612 through the 580s. And so we have a ton of detail what's going on. And so we think about the years of Jerusalem, right? We have 605, 597, 586. During that time period, as Chris was talking about, right, Egypt is, is kind of uh, trying to go against Babylon. They're they're uni- uniting against Assyria. Nineveh falls in 612. Then in 605, Egypt moves up. They have a battle up at Haran, right, in the, kind of northern Mesopotamia. Um, and then, so during that whole, whole time, Jerusalem is trying to figure out, or Judah is trying to figure out which side uh, they should butter their bread on, right? Like, are they going to side with, because it's not entirely clear during that time period, is Assyria going to win out? Is Babylon going to win out? Who do we side with? And so when we get in the letter, this is a, it's very important geopolitically. We have two really important details. One, so I'm just going to read it again. To your servant, it was reported saying the commander of the army has gone down, namely Konyahu, son of El-Natan. So Konyahu, son of El-Natan, is the commander of the Jewish, you know, the Judahite army. That's pretty cool. We actually have his name. So he's gone down to enter into Egypt and to Hudayahu, son of Ahiyahu and his men, he sent to take men basically from here. So on his way from Jerusalem, now this makes sense. If you drive a car (laughs) in Israel today, you're going to drive from Jerusalem down through and you're going to hit past Lachish. You're going to keep going south. So he actually would have not in a car with his army would have gone past this Konyahu, son of El-Natan, past Lachish 
picked up some men and gone to Egypt. And part of this is they're probably taking letters down. They're probably going to Egypt to say, hey, come up and help us. And so it's on one of these things, right? Trying to figure this out. Now, because Jerusalem and Judah does this, right? After Babylon comes down and conquers Lachish and a number of other sites, it is like burnt, scorched earth in in Judah, except for the Benjamite Plateau. So Lachish gets wiped out in 586 and is not going to be rebuilt. And so that's kind of really important because it's a major... Uh, center garrison for troops, right? That they would be picking up. They're guarding the Southern border. That's a, it's a very important site for that. Um, and they could have guarded the South to see when is Egypt swinging back up. And so they're looking South to say, Hey, is Egypt coming through anyway? So I'm just kind of bringing that up to say, we have a really interesting, uh, convergence of texts where we have the Babylonian Chronicle, where we can actually trace years. And then we have this letter telling us, yeah, we got a garrison here. The commander is passing through us. They're going to Egypt, trying to figure out. And that, at that point, they're siding with Egypt, which bad move, right? And so anyway, just kind of saying it's a very important reason for that. So we get that first detail sometime in that time period between 605 to 586, probably earlier in the 90s. Um, the second detail that we have is... Um, so I'll read the second part of that. Also regarding the letter of Toviahu, the servant of the king, which came to Shalom, son of Yadah, from the prophet saying, be on guard, your servant has sent it to my Lord. So we have the second thing. We have a letter from Toviahu. He's the servant of the king. Oh, interesting. And it came to Shalom saying, be on your guard. Who the heck knows what that means? No one, right? I mean, Chris, what do you think that be? I mean, other than the son of the king, we don't really, or the servant of the king, we don't really know. Be on your guard for what? Be on your guard that these men are going to come back. Be on your guard that Egypt's going to swing north. Be on your guard that, like, we really don't. Have you, what's yeah. your take on that? I, I don't have a take. I mean, you have possibilities. I mean, you have, uh, of course, possibility that this is the Chaldeans in the area. You have possibility that this is, you know, we have in this time period, Greek mercenary soldiers. I mean, there's, this could be the Philist. I mean, there's just, there's all kinds of possibilities. I think the the one that makes the most sense is probably something to do with the Chaldeans, but we we can't really we can't really know. And I, I think I think the point you make is is very important. When we think about Lachish's position. When you brought that up, it kind of reminded me of the role Gaza has in the Amarna correspondence as being this kind of collection point for letters to be brought along the the way of Horus to uh to Akhenaten uh there and that was the place that it was disseminated Lachish is obviously a, on a smaller scale than than that because it's it's you know a smaller kingdom but it's it's very fortunate that the excavations would take place at Lachish and that they would be able to uncover these because we should absolutely say that these texts which would have been brought down to Egypt would not have been been on broken potsherds they would have been on parchment or papyri or papyrus um, that, were, that would have been brought to Egypt. And so what we're seeing, and that's why I think it makes sense that these are the drafts of, of what we're sent, but what we're seeing is kind of like that kind of collection area where these, where these texts would have been kept and drafts of these texts would have been kept. And, and most likely in that very room, there were all, you know, hundreds, maybe thousands of, of parchment and papyrus texts that we've simply uh, lost, or maybe they're kept nearby because they didn't find a ton of boule there. And so that's that's one. Um, just to, to add on to that, the last thing I would want to say about this this letter is the use of titles. We have in this letter a king, which in this case is probably Zedekiah, the last king of of Judah. In fact, in some of these texts, 
we have references to the regnal year in the fourth year and the ninth year, which is most likely references to, again, as, as Mary is saying, that the, the, the 590s and maybe into the five, 580s when uh, Zedekiah, I think, was king for the last 11 years of Judah's, of Judah's kingdom. And so we, we have the, the reference to the king, which, as I said, is Zedekiah. But we also have references to a servant of the king. Now, this is um, one thing that I um, have a few thoughts on because I think it's bigger than just how we understand this as within the time of the Hebrew Bible. Because this term, servant of the king or servant even of Yahweh or servant of the Lord, servant of God, it's in both, it's, it's in both testaments. It's, it's both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Now, there are those who really like the idea for instance, in the New Testament, that every term of the every phrase of the term doulos, which is the Greek for uh, for this term servant or slave, should be translated as slave, and seeing it specifically against a Roman backdrop. But the fact is, is that in the Hebrew Bible, doulos is often used as a translation of the Hebrew evid, which has a much wider range than simply a uh, someone who has who is a required you know owned by by a master to 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 be a, to be a slave in fact we know this because we have ministers that were called the servant of the king we could talk about three of these ministers that you know met the rabshakeh when he came up to jerusalem one of them is called the servant of the king these were these were important figures that were not literally slaves belonging to Hezekiah or belonging to the Judite kingdom. It was a title for a minister. And a number of translations and a number of scholars have, have, have indicated that perhaps in these cases, Evid should not be translated as servant, but more like a minister, or at least saying that in, in parentheses. And so I think that's an important point. So for instance, if we're applying this further, and it's pretty obvious when you read Isaiah and you read these other texts that they're saying this in the context of, I am a servant of the Lord, uh, that it's not just simply someone who is a slave, but it's someone who is acting on his behalf. And then that's picked up in the New Testament. I, I think it's a much more complicated issue than it's made out. Uh, and that's why you have translations that make up a word like bond servant and so on. So that's that's one thing. The The other part of these titles is the term the prophet the reference to the prophet. And this is particularly interesting in light of uh, a new discovery that was found a couple of years ago in Elat Mazar's excavations in uh, next to the Temple Mount, where within the same area, they found Bule, that is seal impressions, with the name uh, Hezekiah ben Ahaziah, Ahaziahu, that would be Hezekiah's son of Ahaz, king of Judah, obviously Hezekiah from the Bible, uh, right next to a seal that has Yeshiahu Navi, which seems to be Isaiah prophet. Now, there's all kinds of debate and all kinds of questions. We even have uh, an entire episode that was filmed earlier by Christopher Rolston that I think just aired fairly recently. You can go back and check that out. I'd actually like to talk about this further at some point. Uh, Bill Schneiderwind of UCLA has some really interesting thoughts about this. My point is, is that we talk about these prophets, they're also kind of like another one of these ministers. They're not necessarily, as we're thinking when we read the Old Testament, that it's just a, you know, it's just someone who's preaching all the time in the wilderness. This is someone who is in the court of uh, the, the political kingdom of the kingdom of Judah, and they have an important role to play. And so that's just another detail that's right there. And when you read this text, 
it, it has all the components that you find in Jeremiah. It has all the components that you find in Isaiah. It's breathing the same air. It's the same context. And, and that's what, again, makes this such an interesting uh, text, perhaps even more interesting than the next one we're going to read. How do you like that for transition? That was really exceptional. Very, very smooth. I shouldn't have commented and then it would have been perfect, but alas, I did. Um, okay. So I think we beat that horse to death pretty well. If any more questions about Lakish 3, please send them along. Um, all right. Lakish 4 gets really interesting uh, since the last one wasn't. So here we go. Translation of Lakish 4. May the Lord cause my Lord to hear this very day good tidings. And now, according to all which my Lord sent, thus your servant has done. I wrote on the, the sheet or the door, according to all which you sent me. And given the fact that the Lord sent regarding the matter of Beit Harapid, there is no one there. And as for Semekyahu, Semekyahu took him, and please note those are two different names. We can talk about that. Took him and brought him up to the city. And as for your servant, I am not sending him to there again today. But by the close of the morning, I will send him. And my Lord, know that we are watching the fire signals of Lachish, according to the code which my Lord gave, for we cannot see the sign of Azekah. The end. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, yeah this, is, this is the one. I mean, this is the one that when people think of the Lachish letters, it's Lachish letter four. And maybe even if you're like a nerd like me and you have it visualized in your mind with that nice triangle at the bottom, uh, maybe, maybe that's just me. Uh, but it's a it's a well-known text. It's it's something that uh, it's almost like you're reading the battle notes of the you know what's happening in uh, in Lachish um, in, in, during the time of the Chaldeans. And just right off the bat, one of the most important connections comes from the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah 34 verses six and seven say, Jeremiah the prophet spoke all these words to Zedekiah, king of Judah in Jerusalem. When the army of the king of Babylon was fighting against Jerusalem and against all the cities of Judah that were left. And then it mentions the two cities that were left, Lachish and Azekah, for these were the only fortified cities of Judah that remained. And so what stage of the chronology it is that Jeremiah 34, 6 and 7 happens has to be like, 587, 586. But where this is happening, it seems to be obviously a little bit before that. But the fact that it makes reference specifically to Lachish and Azekah, and maybe even Jerusalem in this text, in fact, a number of scholars uh, suggest that the city that they're referring to is Jerusalem. That would be you know, the, the city par excellence, you know, the, the city that everyone uh, Im- imagines when they talk about the city. Although that, that's, you know, a bit unclear. But the point is, is that Azekah and Lachish, these two large cities, even by standards of, you know, the day that which they lived in, uh, were integral parts of the kingdom of Judah, so much so that they were very well defended and were able to stand to the last destruction of the kingdom in, in 586. And so that's just a, an obvious uh, connection that can be readily made from that. And related to that, of course, is what we hinted at earlier in the episode with the use of fire signals. Uh, the use of fire signals is uh, is something that we can gather from this text. We can also gather it from, from some other text. For instance, for instance, if you look earlier in the book of Jeremiah, it, it's, I think it's Jeremiah chapter 6, it says, raise a signal at Beta Kerem light, uh, blow the trumpet at Tekoa. And it's referring to probably a southern branch of a uh, of a fire signal system 
They didn't have iPhones. You know, they didn't have news. I mean, of course, they could send runners. We see that in, uh, you know, when David is fighting with Absalom in uh, in the Transjordan, they send runners telling him what's happening. And that was certainly part of it. But fire signals were an important part of that. We have it in these texts. Um, And there's perhaps other examples of these. Uh, For instance, it's been suggested that there are forts that are built along the western slopes of the hills, kind of like just in the West Bank. We're talking about, if you, if you think of the Elah Valley, Battle of David and Goliath, just east of there, about five miles going up into the hills, there's several of these forts, which uh, had, Ami Mazar has suggested um, that these were forts that, whose primary purpose was to be a chain that linked back to Jerusalem. And, and it makes sense. It makes sense that this would be the way that they would uh, that they would do this, which also makes sense that if you're doing all this, it assumes that you have administration. It assumes that you've obviously pre-planned all of this uh, and can defend it, which, of course, as I mentioned earlier, you know, the best made plans of mice and men, it doesn't happen because they're destroyed. <laughs> like, that's the funny thing about these these beautiful fortifications most uh, every time they're destroyed. So uh, it doesn't work, but we can at least get a sense of, of how, what their purpose was. The, the other thing I'd say about this letter that's, that's of interest is we have a, a reference to another toponym. You know, Mary would know that I love toponyms, and we don't know where it is. Beit Harpad or Harapid. Uh, we don't know where this is. Uh, so if any of our listeners have any suggestions, it's one of those sites not mentioned in the Bible, but was definitely part of the kingdom of Judah in the seventh and sixth century, um, and potentially could be found, but we haven't we haven't found it as of yet. Mary, do you have any comments about Lakeish Letter Four? Sure. Um, we do have to your last point. The we do have some version of Harapid or some version of that toponym mentioned in an Aramaic ostracon for the from the fourth century. Um, so there is another example of it. It seems to still be known several hundred years later. Some suggest that and there had to be a clear view from both from Azeka and Maresha to see this site, right? So um, I think Lemaire suggests a site eight kilometers north of Lachish, the Tel Bornat. So let's jump to the top. So the first thing is we get at the very front, right? Now, there is a ton of ton of work done on basically letter format and basically how you open a letter and what's what's permitted, right, in terms of how you how you write a letter. Um, and so this letter is a little bit more formal because we get uh, at the very beginning, we sort so of say, and Yahweh, uh, may the may Yahweh cause. Adoni to hear this very day. So he's saying, may Yahweh cause my Lord. So he's setting himself up saying, calling this, this individual, his Lord. Um, And he says, may him, may he hear good tidings, right? So we start out a very formal letter. So he's doing kind of an introductory salutation here, which is important. Um, And um, he also says, and now according to all which my Lord, or so my Adoni, right, has sent, your servant has done. So again, saying, look, I did all the task lists that you gave to me. And then he jumps in, and this is kind of an interesting one. And it says, I wrote on something according to all which you sent to me. And the word in the letter is delet, which, or 
at the time it would have probably been pronounced DALT. We don't have um, sort of that intervening intervening letter um, in DELIT. Anyway, that's long long story, but we know that that, that vowel change hasn't happened yet um, or likely hasn't happened yet. Um, and so it says, I wrote on the door according to all what you sent to me. And so there's lots of questions about like what is this door? Is it actually a door? Is this another way? We always see the word delts or delits, delits referring to door. 95 theses he put on the door? Precisely, like nailed it up there, right? So this is a, this is a good question, right? So it's very possible that, um, so this is what people suggest, is that it's not actually on a door, but that there is a location where the barracks are or whatever, where it would have been, hey, here's your task list, or this is what you're supposed to do, or this is the order. He, and so he's saying, look, I actually did that. So it's important to kind of understand. I, I just like it because it's um, sort of referencing their daily life, right? It, it jumps out of the citation. It's like a practical detail. It, you know, it's not something you would necessarily expect to have in a text. It's really interesting. It made me think of when, yeah. It made me think of when you said that, that there's like holes in the um, Assyrian king lists. And the reason why they think that is because it was literally hung up on the wall so you could, as a scribe, look and, and refer to it so you'd know how to date things. And Gezer Calendar has something similar, right? The idea that these things are hung places and that it would have been there, right? So that's pretty interesting. Anyway, I think it's just kind of an interesting way of saying, look, I did all the stuff that you did and I wrote it on the door, et cetera, or, or kind of the page that's there. The other thing that's interesting about that is that when we talk about were these originally written on potsherds or paper or parchment or papyrus, whatever, right? It would have been something hanging on a door and I don't think it would have been a potsherd, <laughs> right? So you probably aren't hanging potsherds on a door, right? It's probably... I mean, you could, you could, but probably not. And so it's probably papyrus or parchment and it would have been hung there and he would have been checking it off, which is kind of cool. So um, it just is another indication. We had a good indication of scribalism in the last one. We have another really interesting one. The other one is he's, he's saying, look, I'm a servant, a servant to this individual. And he's saying himself, I wrote, not I had the scribe write, right? He's saying, I did all this stuff and I wrote it down. Now, does that mean he wrote it? Yeah, maybe, right? So um, otherwise he would have used a different form of the verb, like I caused to be written, which would have gotten the same word across. He said, no, I wrote. And so I think that that's pretty significant as well. So another really good indication of scribalism in the sort of um, 580s, 590s. Okay, so then um, we mentioned the Harapid. Not sure where that is, but would have been probably visible. Um, and then we get this really interesting, so jumping over that, unless you have anything to, to add to that. Um, we have this kind of really interesting thing where it says, as for Semakyahu, Semayahu took him and brought him up to the city. Okay, wow. So lots here. So we're not exactly sure what's happening. Um, there's been a lot of sort of debate about what's, who's this guy, Semakyahu? Why is he being brought? So some people suggest maybe he's a prisoner and he was being taken from north and brought to the brought down south. Maybe he was just on an errand. Maybe he was he was escorted because he needed he needed military escorts because it's pretty dangerous during this these you know couple decades right. Um, and it says took him and brought him up to the city. And here we have a good example where city is probably Jerusalem. And so the idea of just using the term um, ear, city, to refer to the capital of a region. And that makes sense. Everybody would know. And it's the same thing we would do now, right? If you live in New York State and you say, I'm going to the city, you're going to Manhattan. You're not going to, you know, a local, you know, province or something. So very similar to how we would use it here. Um, 
any de- I'm assuming you have details or more to add on the. Yeah, I would just, I, I mean, it, it reminds me of, uh, I don't have a ton of things to add about poor old Semek Yahoo, um, but it reminds me also of something you see in the Arad Ostraka where it talks about uh, Beit Yahweh. Uh, and, and there's a debate there because there is a, uh, a small shrine in Arad uh, that dates to this around, probably around the same time as the, the letters. Maybe it's even, even abandoned by that point. But it's a kind of thing where if you're referring to the house of Yahweh, it has to be the house in Jerusalem. I mean, this is not a full-on temple, and that's even reflected kind of in the biblical text. So I would say it makes it makes really good sense that it would be a reference to Jerusalem itself. It could be other things, and this this kind of fits in with one of my I, like an idea that I do have about this these this letter and the reference to, to fire signals in the Libna district, uh, which is Joshua fifteen forty two through forty four. Is nine cities. It uh, goes from the first three are Libna, Eter, Ashan. It also mentions the sites of Kela, Nazib, which is what we we call the chalk trough, which is on the eastern edge of the Shvela, where, where it connects with the hills. There's the site of Oxib, which is probably a site called uh, Tel Beta, and it ends at a place called Maresha. So it's a very localized list, right in the center of the Shvela, mostly around the Nahal Guvrin and the Nahal Marasha, which is uh, where Tel Borna is, the site, the site that I excavate. Now, why this is of interest to me is it's essentially right between Azekah and Lakish. Azekah is in the Ela Valley. It's a very prominent site topographically. It's a very important site archaeologically. It's been excavated for a number of years now. There's clear evidence of 7th century remains. They even have a, a small gate there. Uh, it wouldn't need anything to qualify to have a fire signal. I mean, all you would need to do is let a fire on top. And most like, I literally, it, it could be seen everywhere, almost in the Shvela. Uh, and the same is somewhat true for Lakish. But for Lakish, it's actually kind of a weird thing in that it's an elevated site, but it's surrounded by, well, I should say this, the, the valley in the Hall Lakish, which we call the Hall Lakish, it wraps around the site on all sides. So there are hills that surround it. And so from Lakish, you can see a lot, but you can't necessarily see Lakish from other places unless you know where to look. And yet on top of Lakish, there is a massive palatial podium. It is our best example of Judahite uh, semi-royal architecture. In fact, if you think of the Sennacherib uh, relief, there is a chariot and incense stands that are taken out and brought before Sennacherib as he sits on his throne and says Sennacherib, king of the universe. Most likely those, those are originating from this palatial compound. It's absolutely huge. And all we possess of it today are the foundations, but it would have been, a, it could have supported a huge structure on top of which was almost assuredly lit the fire signals that we're, that we're discussing, which could have been seen uh, from Azekah and on a clear day, you can see Azekah even from uh, the top of the tell at Lakish. Now, why this is interesting to me is well, one, it really uh, helps us understand the, t- the this text here. But between those two is this Libna district, and within the Libna district itself, and kind of uh, bisecting the Shvela is a is a single ridge. In fact, I was reading fairly recently uh, uh, Charles Warren, the famous. Uh, 
excavator or plunderer, if you like, of Jerusalem, he refers to this ridge as the hogback, <laughs> the hogback of of the of the Shvela. And it's a continuous ridge that that goes from the area of Tel Goded, sometimes identified with Moresha Gath, I think incorrectly, with Azekah in the north. And it's just a continuous ridge that that defines it. And so I've argued recently that Tel Goded, or Tel Judeda as it's called, is possibly the site of Ashan. And in the Libna district, we have it starting Libna, which we've, I think, essentially demonstrated not, I mean, there's some doubt, but almost without a shadow of doubt that, that Telborna has to be Libna. We even found uh, an Arabic name, Wadi Abu Laban, which runs right beside it. We have Etter, which we've we've surveyed in our project, and its name is preserved, Kirbit Atter. It's the same name. And so the third place, which is in the same vicinity, would be, in my opinion, um, Tel Goded, and I would identify it with Ashan. Now, why that's interesting is not only did you have a geographical grouping, but it could also be related to its function. What does Ashan mean? Uh, well, if you know a little bit of Hebrew and you go into restaurants, it says you to not smoke, and Ashan is smoke. Uh, so it's possible that it is related to this, this fire signal, this fire smoke. And then next to it, there's, a, there's an Arabic name, Kirbit al-Husanat, the guttural uh, of, of Husanat with Ahshan, it's, a, it's an ayin, could relate to one another. And so that's, an, in, from a historical geographical perspective, I think a pretty good case can be made that Tel Goded is Ashan, which of course means it can't be Mareshit Gath. Uh, and I have other ideas about that, but I think there's good evidence that it's not Mareshit Gath, but we'll save that for another episode. Now, in the L- Lakish letters, Andre Lemaire's publication in the final publication of Lakish, he has a text which has on it, that's included among the, the Lakish corpus, the, the city name Ashan. He also has two texts which mention the name Libna um, in the Lakish corpus. Much of these were, I think all these were found in the Yushishkin excavation, which tells us, and we, we know this for sure at Tel Borna, that this was a fairly significant uh, 7th and 6th century site. There's a ton of silos there. And if the site is Libna, this was the home of Hamutal, who was the mother of some of the last kings of, of, uh, of Judah. Hamutal had married uh, Josiah. And so it would show that it's a part and an integral part of this kingdom right in the same vicinity as these important centers of Azekah and Lachish. And so you can see how, just in terms of the settlement pattern, if we're talking about Judah in both the 8th ev- the and especially here in the 7th and the 6th centuries, how there's these smaller to medium-sized sites, but then there's these, these larger sites like Lachish and Azekah that are a part of this system that would have uh, not only supported military personnel coming back and forth, traveling with documents to Jerusalem, but also could have communicated, as we've, as we've indicated, uh, with these fire signals. Now, one last thing, as long as I'm on this topic, we also have references to the site of Oxiv, which I firmly believe that it's, it's at a place called Tel Beda. Now, this is interesting as well, because in an earlier century, in the, in the, in the campaign of Sennacherib, we have references to the houses of Oxiv, and this gets mentioned in in the Lakish uh, the Lakish letters 
uh, and connection even with pottery. And some have even suggested that Oxiv itself was perhaps a pottery production, uh, a pottery production area. Now, all that to say, when we're talking about toponyms, I love toponyms. Like, it's like my thing. I, I really like them. Um, so, in fact, when we were preparing for this episode, and I had not read Andre Libmer's report, and I said I saw that it has Ashan and Libna mentioned twice in this publication. I, I couldn't believe I didn't know this. Uh, so this was very profitable for me. This will be in, in you know, and even in our final report, this these references that we had noticed before. So one last comment about toponyms. There's another letter, uh, inscription number 20, that is very kind of short. It says, end the ninth year, bait, and then it's broken. And then there's enough space for it to end with Yahoo. And then it says, Hekalyu, son of something. Now, the first part of that is important. In the ninth year, that would be in the ninth year of Zedekiah. So if he reigns only 11 years, you're two years before the destruction. And it mentions the the place name Beit something Yahoo. Now, why that's really interesting is if we think about toponyms in the Bible, we have lots of uh, toponyms that get uh, uh, deity elements. We can think of Anathoth, or we call it Anathoth, or Anathoth, uh, the home of Jeremiah. It has Anat in it. We could think of Beit Horon, which is Horon as a deity. We could think of Bethel. Beit El, the house of El. We could think of many names with, with Baal in them, Kiryat Baal, Baal Ma'on, and, and, and many others. Some of these don't necessarily, you, you know, when, when they live there, they may not have thought about it any more than we think about our toponyms today. Sometimes they may have thought about it. Sometimes they may have said, this is a bad idea, let's change the name. Um, and we find that sometimes. But what is really interesting is that Despite the fact that Yahoo is virtually uh, the most popular way of of naming someone in, uh, in, in in these texts that we have, it never occurs in a toponym. In other words, it it appears in people's names, but it does not appear in uh, place names. And so, this one reference could actually be our one exception. Uh, to that to that rule. Unfortunately for us, the first part of it is broken. <laughs> so we don't know for sure that it is a toponym, but if it is, it's quite exceptional. And so that's all I'll say about the toponyms of Lakish. I'm so glad that some people care about toponyms. That's awesome. It's, it's pretty important. I spent my dissertations writing on personal names. So that's even more boring and less practical than toponyms. So I think that's that's pretty great. Um, there were just a few other details on this letter that I think are important that we can kind of run through just because it's important for us. Um, so I was going to say this letter is an interesting one because the other letters in the, in the sort of... Uh, Corpus, very often when they're written from a servant to a master, they ref- the servant refers to himself as a dog. Uh, just I'll, I'll read a couple. So letters two, five, six, I'll have this. So um, letter two says, to my Lord, Yahush, may Yahweh cause my Lord to hear good tidings of well-being. So same as this letter, right now, this day, immediately, who is your servant but a dog that my Lord has remembered his servant? And we get that in, in letters five and six as well. So there's this automatic sort of placing them, but you know, beneath the feet of them. And this is kind of, for those of you who tuned into the Amarna letters, right, this is very much reminiscent of the Amarna letters when they actually refer to themselves as dogs before the Egyptian kings, right? And they're rolling on their bellies and all this other stuff. So you get this sort of hierarchy that happens. Well, we don't see that in this letter. Now, why? Was it 
it just, you know, isn't a mission, right? Or was he in a higher rank? There's something that's quite interesting about sort of the hierarchy that in within the military that's pretty interesting by reading the details and comparing the letters. Like for some reason, he doesn't feel a need to compare himself to a dog in this letter in particular. I'll kind of zoom forward through like a few more details just as it's pretty important. So in line seven of this text, there's 13 lines in this one, um, 12, and then one word tagged on the 13th line. In line seven, we get a form of the verb. It's called a vav consecutive. And the only reason why this is really important, it's important for, for those of you who know Hebrew, you read through the Hebrew Bible, you right away see this kind of vav consecutive format, which is, or you hear, might hear them hear this called a vav retentive or vav conversive, or there's just some names for it. But basically it's a vav plus an imperfect form of the verb, but it's it switches the verb form to a perfect. And so what we get here is a really good narrative format in the letter itself, where they're actually using the vav, vav conversive or vav retentive, vav consecutive. And it's the only example we have of that out of the Hebrew Bible. So that's really important for us to understand that they're actually writing in this sort of narratival form. He's saying, and this, and this, and this, and this. So that's quite interesting. Um, and then if we, we jump to sort of the last chunk of the letter, which is obviously kind of the most important part of the letter, the thing that's been written the most about. And the quiche for is this talk of the signal fires. And there's a lot you can say to that. And we sh- I just thought you know, it's good to mention it, right? So he says, by the close of the morning, I will send, I will send him. And my Lord, no. And he's saying they're like, you should be knowing that. It's a kind of a continuative form of the verb, meaning that like, it's not a one-time thing. It's not like we did the signal fires once and that was it. And it well, right, this is a continuative wa- like watching. We are continually watching. Be rest assured, we're going to be watching the signal fires of the quiche. Now, the signal fires of the quiche, this letter, now here's where it gets interesting, right? It's found at Lachish. They're watching the signifiers of Lachish. So the letter was probably not written at Lachish. Now, this is a good example of this, you know, how, where is this letter coming and being being sent from? Um, and so that's where we get kind of more, more um, interesting because he goes on and he says, we're watching the fire signals of the Lachish and according to the code, which my Lord gave. So there's some type of code between the signal fires and what they mean for, we cannot see the sign of Azeka. So they're also looking at Azeka. So what's that central? And you talked about this and maybe it's written from somewhere else, maybe Marussia. And so they're looking for both and they're that central hub watching for both. They can't see Azeka anymore, right? Why not? And they're still watching the ones at Lachish. So the question is sort of like the kind of thing the the historical lead the many make is that the the armies have already come down and taken Azeka, which has been a very central important site. Maresha is waiting; they can't see it anymore, and they're still watching Lachish. Lachish is still burning, and this letter is found at Lachish, preserving this. Pretty pretty interesting. So I don't know if you have thoughts on that. I know you talked about it, but I think from a historical perspective, what's your take? Yeah, no, I, I, I exactly. I, I think that it it would be nice to have more information, and I, I think that when we talk about this, we can never talk about it in like definitive terms because we only have one side of the conversation. But I think that would be certainly the most dramatic way of interpreting it, and I think it's a viable option. You know that that, and, and I like the point you make, uh, and we'll we'll put a map up on the um, on the site so people, if they want to see what you know these places that we're talking about. But it, it, I really do think you're right in that they're looking from somewhere else. They're not at Lakish. They're not at Ezekah. And those of you who have been to the Shvelach can really get a sense of this. Um, we wake up every 
every day in the summer to go to the tell and we see the sunrise right over this mountain and you can tell Bornat and you can see to your left, you can see Azeka off in the distance and to your right, you can see, uh, see Lakish. And so if they're on the West side, they could be at a place like Tel Bornat. If they're on Marasha, which is on the East side of this Ridge, you could see these same places, or they could be up on a place like Tel Godad where they are just as high and they could see up into the hills. So we can't really know that. And it could be that they are uh, testing it. You know what I mean? Like I tried to see if there's fire signals at Azeka, but from this place, I couldn't see it because maybe they're trying to alert someone in the South, you know, from Hebron or something to come. So there's too many possibilities, but again, it it speaks to, um, you know, the reality of this system. We have the geography that that we can use and try to uh, explore the different possibilities of this text, which still, even after its discovery some 90 years ago, is very fascinating. Uh, to to it, it really has the the feel of 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 something's about to go down or something's going down at that moment. And, and it, as we know, whether it was that moment or just, just after, something certainly went down at Azeka, Lakish, Telborna, Maresha, and all of these sites. And unfortunately for the kingdom of Judah, Jerusalem also, uh, which meant the destruction of the kingdom. I want to give one more nod, just so that people don't think we're nuts and trans like thinking about that dramatic scene from Lord of the Rings, right? And thinking like, oh, this is what we actually have other examples of fire sig- signals. So all the way in back in the Bronze Age, there's a Mari letter that mentions um, at some point we'll do a Mari letter, but um, uh, there's a Mari le- letter that mentions um, signal fires of the Benjamites. And so this idea, it's not entirely clear and we don't have a ton of context, but we already know that this is a valid means of communication in the ancient world. So we're not sort of, you know, it, it is actually something and then and the, the texts seem to mimic one another. And so it's pretty clear they are using these. Um, and so, and, and we get there, it says we're following the code, which is like, Otot, the signs. And so they're looking for the signs. So it's not writing or anything else. It's actually signs, which is pretty cool. So, um, it was a valid means of actually transmitting information from site to site. And it had been going on now for a thousand years, right? Mari's all the way back 1800 BC. So more than a thousand years ago, they were already doing this and, and it's been going on now, right? So it's a very valid system. They probably had a whole set of signs that they were watching for. Yeah. And I mean, if you think about how this would have, how this would have worked again, we can't say with certainty, but if you, if you light two small fires, that's something different than lighting one. If you light fires with dung versus versus uh, you know you know the oak trees in the area, it's going to give off a different kind of fire. And they would have played around with these to create different signals um, that would have different messages. And so, if we use our great example, uh, thanks to Peter Jackson of two towers, there they're lighting it, and it's just you know hurrying come. And that may have been all it was, but possibly there's there's more to it than that than than just simply yeah, you're talking about signs it's not just like the fires are going no we're using the signs that you told us to so they actually have more meaning for more than more than just it's on or not right yeah, just so. like the bat signal you know just like the bat signal you know you can link it a couple times uh um, it's like morse code yeah this is the, no, this exactly. is the judah's bat signal right you know that this hurry come 
Yeah. So recapping, we read together Lakeish letter three and four, um, kind of talked through the historical information that we know about that. Lakeish, very important site throughout the Bronze Age and then into the Iron Age. Really important both for understanding the Assyrian conquest of the Shvela and then also the Babylonian conquest of Shvela. So basically, five years after these letters were written, it gets destroyed, never to be resurrected in the same way. So um, this is a pretty important thing. It's the last writing from the people there. They would have probably died or been taken captive um, after writing these letters, which is pretty, pretty gnarly. So definitely cool. Last will and testament. Yeah, definitely cool stuff. Uh, Maybe Yahush dies in the battle. Hoshiahu, what happens to these guys? Do they go to Egypt? Do they they, uh, get sent off to Babylon? Um, all these are pots. Do they die? It's, it's a, it's a very interesting, very interesting to think about. And I, I think one of the, and maybe we'll close here, just it's, we, we can know kind of like the, the grand sweep of history of what happens and we can give the years and we have the Babylonian Chronicle and all this, but to have someone like specific to, to, to amidst the crowd to talk about the individual, I, I think it adds a certain human component <clears throat> to the story that makes you really think about it at a deeper level, which is why, of course, novels exist a day in the life of or a week in the life of. Uh, maybe that's what somebody should do a week in the life of Lakish. Be pretty short. It'd, yeah, <laughs> it'd be pretty short. But anyway, we've enjoyed Thank you, Chris. We've enjoyed the Stain series. Uh, we're, we're glad to re, uh, restart it after a bit of a break. If you have any requests, please feel free to comment about other texts that we might want us to talk about of course we may say yes or no uh, but we are planning on doing some in the not too distant future to continue to add more to these significant texts of the ancient near east and i had a good time doing this one and we look forward to next time uh, where we'll come back and do something else Uh, until next time listeners thank you for listening you've been listening to on scripts biblical world podcast if you enjoy this show please show your support by giving us a rating on iTunes or wherever you listen. You can support the show by visiting onscript.study slash donate.